and namaste to all of you. We are now starting with our commentary. We are continuing, of course, with our commentary on the shlokas, on the words of Krishna, on the divine teachings from Bhagavad Gita. Of course, being into a yoga school, we are trying always to find the yogic interpretation, what is the technology or the technical yogic thing involved in those sayings to interpret it in a practical way. We are towards the end of the third chapter and we just spoke last time about the Rajas Guna. Arjuna asked a very, very relevant question asking Krishna what does Krishna consider to be the cause of sin. This word sin is hated very much by people today, especially by young people, because very often we interpret the concept of democracy as a freedom which is oriented towards anarchy. Most people consider that democracy equal you do what you want, when you want, how you want, and nobody should tell you not to. And if somebody would tell you that drinking too much is a sin from a religious standpoint, then of course people would get offended by it. And then the first reaction is, who the heck declared this to be as a sin? I don't believe in this nonsense. For me, there is no sin. Like we hate any system which defines things which are sinful or virtues, because actually many of us are doing in the daily life things which can be considered by those norms as sinful, both by some Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, Islamic, Jewish norms, the sexual life of the modern people, which is like in Sex and the City, is considered to be a sin from one end to the other. All of it. It's just fornication. And because of this, of course nobody wants to hear that. Because if you would hear that, you would have to put a cap on it. You would have to put a harness on your sexuality. And nobody does that. Nobody wants to stop from drinking. Nobody wants to stop from lying. Nobody wants to stop from verbal abuse and violence. Nobody wants to stop from fornicating sexuality. They prefer to declare that there is no sin. And especially in a time where the religion goes down and the materialism, the skepticism, the cynicism, the atheism, the agnosticism and such things are proeminent and they are part of the educational system because they are supposed to be scientific. Science has come to the point of being defined as against anything religious. Then everybody prefers to be scientific because in science there is no sin. The sin in science is only by the law. And if the law allows uninhibited sexuality or drinking until you drop under the table or other such things, then it's, mo it's nicer, it's much more loose, and generally the crowds tend to vote laws which are supporting their vices, 
like nobody would vote a law which would say that tobacco is forbidden. In the 16th century when tobacco was brought from the Americas, it was called the devil's grass because the shamans from South America were smoking it and the nicotine was producing them to go into trance with spasms and convulsions and the state produced by the nicotine addiction and possession looks very much like a demonic possession from outside. There is nothing angelic about it. And that's why the first missionaries who saw it used by the tribes, they call it the devil's grass. Of course, that was in a time of bigotry, of Christian fanaticism. And in those days, monks in monasteries, or even a hundred years later, even two hundred years later, in the 18th century or 19th century even, monks in monasteries or nuns in monastery, they would never smoke. Smoking was considered an unacceptable vice for religious people. Today many do it and thus this problem with the sin is a very provocative problem because we have pushed our concept of freedom into a sort of anarchy so that we can be free to sin, so we can be free to manifest our vices. And that's why everything which is religious has today come to be considered right-wing, conservative, old-fashioned, patriarchal, and this, because the idea of the people is that the Democrats and the left-wing politicians are going to vote laws which will liberalize marijuana, which will allow you to do whatever you want, whenever you want, and it is only the damn conservatives and the right-wingers who are still holding back and they are clinging to what they call decency and family and I don't know old-fashioned values and they still uh, go with all these old-fashioned bollocks and so on. Unfortunately, as I say, when you look today, especially the young people, especially the artists, especially all these categories of free-minded people, they all of them hate the concept of sin because the concept of sin reminds us that we do it all the time and at least 400 years ago people were trying desperately as much as human strength allows it not to sin. Nobody would have admitted 400 years ago that okay I sin so what if I sin? you would have become the pariah of the society because everybody else was on the opinion that when you sin, you should stop like hit by the lightning when you discover that you have sinned or that you are doing something which is a sin and stop in your tracks immediately and correct that showing a sort of goodwill, that showing that you love God or whatever, in whichever way you want to put it. And the opposite of it, showing that you are a fiend of God the opposite of it, showing that you are dark. Therefore, you would call many things in the modern society demonic and demonized, and today the concept of sin has lost its edge, and uh, precisely because of this it is misunderstood and misinterpreted. So Krishna answered in a very technical way about the state of sin, and then immediately afterwards he changes track, and in the last five verses, verses of the chapter number three, he suddenly comes back onto a track 
on which he was in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he defined a sort of yoga of knowledge. And for those of you who did not listen to the comments on that part of chapter 2, there he tried to alleviate the doubts of Arjuna by giving him a hardcore philosophy. He gave him like some hardcore jnana. Krishna starts very abruptly because the chapter number two is the first chapter in which he starts giving explanations. And in the chapter number two, he starts like radically, like you think wrong and you are ignorant. And if you would think right, that's approximately what you would think. And then you would not consider things wrong in this way and right in that way. You would see things, Krishna would say, the way I see them, the way Krishna sees them, which means the way God sees them. So, there he, dem he developed a whole explanation about the nature of Atman, about the nature of the self. He taught Arjuna, and this is something which we mention here in this school in the Karma Yoga lecture, because this is one of the greatest demonstrations, spiritual demonstrations in Indian literature about the nature of the Supreme Self, about how the human being doesn't really understand who they are in their true nature and thus um, Krishna tries to explain. And those of you who heard the explanations or who read the chapter number two at least of the Bhagavad Gita, they know that there Krishna is very abrupt he sets some very high stakes, some very high standards in front of Arjuna. Almost nobody that you know in your life, even very spiritual people, can think like this 24-7. It's like he's holding his mind at a very high standard. He's very demanding. And in the end of the second chapter, he speaks very much about the distinction between the senses, the mind, and the spirit. Again, he calls it the self, the supreme self, Atman. In European philosophy, we would call the mind and the spirit. The spirit is the name which is generically used in Western philosophy for designating that particle of immortality, that every human being has a drop of spirit, a spark of the great fire of God, a drop of immortality. And that immortal particle in us is called in India Atma or Atman. The Buddhists call it the Buddha nature. And in European spirituality, it has been designated by Leibniz and others like them by the word spirit. It, of course, started with the Christian theologians, even with Paul, the apostle of Christ, that the human being is made of body, soul, and the highest of them, spirit, which is the divine nature. So here in the chapter number three, although he spoke about some very powerful topics such as Dharma, one's Dharma and action with detachment and here he started coming strong with Karma Yoga, nevertheless in the last five strophes, as if he had remembered something about something which needed to be reminded or which was not clarified enough or maybe it was good to bring it up again, Suddenly, the last five strophes with which we close the chapter, they are again about the nature of the mind and of the spirit and the relationship with the regular consciousness and with the senses. And here is what Krishna continues explaining. He says, as fire is covered by smoke, as a mirror is covered by dust, 
as an embryo is covered by the amnion, so is this covered by that. So, of course, the three analogies are clear. Fire sometimes can be screened by a lot of smoke, and then you don't see the fire at all, or you see it very unclearly, depending on how smoke there is. As a mirror can be clouded by dust, and then you don't see a clear reflection in the mirror, you see the layer of dust which covers the mirror. As the embryo is covered by the amnion, that's a bit a more cryptical one. Of course, it refers to the human embryo or any animal embryo, which is in an amniotic fluid, in a sac called the amnion of amniotic fluid. And theoretically, if you would see just that bag of amniotic fluid, you would not really see clearly what inside that inside there is a fetus. So he speaks about an analogy which shows like there is a mask, there is a screen which doesn't make you see clearly what's behind that screen. And he says, as fire is enveloped by smoke, as a mirror by dust, and as an embryo by the amnion, so is this enveloped by that. This, of course, meaning the spirit, which is hard to perceive, extremely subtle, because the spirit is not an energy, it's not an aspect of the mind, and therefore it is immaterial, transcendent, and there is no way to smear it and thus see it and therefore it is covered by something. We don't see this with a capital T, the spirit, because of that which is the mind and the senses. Therefore the human being is deluded by their own thinking. By thinking about something you cannot perceive the spirit. That's why the yogis have agreed that yoga has to be accompanied by the stopping of the mind. When the mind stops, then you see the spirit. When the emotions stop, then you see the mind. When the mind stops, then you see the spirit. Everything is a screen. It's an interesting model to compare the more and more coarse layers of the human beings with a smoke screen, with something which hides the reality and deludes the human being. And he continues in 39. Wisdom is veiled by this insatiable flame of desire, which is the constant enemy of the wise, O son of Kunti. Here Krishna says something which is echoed perfectly by Buddha. Buddha says the mind keeps working and the human being keeps reincarnating as long as there is desire. As long as there is desire, the language of yoga says, Patanjali in his Yoga Sutra says, there appear samskaras, samskaras or vasanas, residual aspects in the subconscious mind. Modern science even brought it down to chemistry and calls it sometimes neurotransmitters. Like if you like to smoke, smoking, although it's not healthy and there is not much to like about it, Nevertheless, smokers like it to such an extent sometimes that they are unable to give it up. And smoking produces, and it's not only smoking, it's every addictive thing from sex to falafels and from drinking alcohol to whatever you want. The, any addictive factor, including tobacco in our example, produces some neurotransmitters. And those neurotransmitters give a sensation of satisfaction. 
which is of course a sensation of satisfaction that we pay very dearly for because we smoke a cigarette and we feel kind of good. There is something in us which feels fulfilled and the neurotransmitters run through our blood system and we feel a sort of a drug rush. It's like, ha, ah, we did, I feel good. But then of course in the long run, it can get me into a cancer it closes my Anahata Chakra, it does a lot of negative things. And thus, the yogis did not identify the psychophysical, the, the chemical mechanism, because they never had the kind of science which we have today in the modern scientific research. But the yogis saw it only as psychological residues. They simply said it's exactly like weeds. Let's suppose you have a weed in your garden. You are a gardener and you want to plant some flowers. And there are some weeds. And the weeds keep coming all the time, all the time. They are so extraordinarily resistant. You have to pamper the flowers and to groom them and to protect them. And the weeds, nobody protects them and they are incredible. You, dis you destroy them, you pull their roots out, you use all sorts of things for them, mechanically, chemically, and they keep coming with an incredible stubbornness. Those weeds which keep coming are comparable to the samskaras. The samskaras in the mind, if they are not uprooted 100% and a little bit of a piece of a root is still there, they again produce a new plant and they again come stubbornly. They are stubborn to live, to continue living. It's the same with the samskaras or vasanas. Both Sanskrit names are equivalent and are used equivalently in Sanskrit to a large extent. Scholarly, we can find some minor differences, but there's no, it's not the point of this at all today. And thus, the samskaras are like weeds in your mind. And you just let your mind a little bit unattended. And in a matter of hours, days, weeks, or months, your weeds are coming back such as you have been a person who did lots of, let's say, alimentary asceticism, such as you did fasting, lots of fasting, you did Oshava diet, macrobiotic number seven diet, and for the last 10 years you have been really severe on your dietary things. And everybody else thinks you are a champion because you eat so boringly, so everybody thinks that your food is not tasty and too simple and this, because they desire things which are juicy, tasty, and they are addicted to them. What they are addicted to can be deeply unhealthy, like they like to eat stuff which is deep fried, and deep fried stuff is generally not very healthy. And yet some people, if they don't eat some fried stuff from time to time, they don't get those neurotransmitters, and they are like a drug addict. That, that's, that's being the example with the falafels, which are generally deep-fried stuff. Although they are made from natural products, but still, they are deep-fried. There is a deep-frying factor there. And what I'm trying to say here, these people would be addicted, and this person who is the spiritual champion for 10 years, he put it down and he didn't touch it, and he ate completely vegan and healthy and raw and fruitarian and this and that. And you would say this person has become so disinterested, like after 10 years of doing this, you are fine, you are a saint by now, you are a spiritualized person. The sad truth is, that if you stop making efforts, and if any point, for example, you get discouraged, like you don't think that all this diet thing is going to help you that much, 
and kind of you slacken, you lower your guard, you lose your interest for it. Then the weeds are growing up again. In six months, you find yourself overwhelmed by the desires for the food from the old days because it's like weeds. And people say, so it sounds like a hopeless. It's, this is like the myth of Sisyphus, that Sisyphus was pushing a rock up a hill, and every time he let go of it, the rock will roll back down, and he would have to start all over. Like you can do 10 years of fasting and dieting, and then after 10 years, when you slacken a little bit, you are again prone to the desires like 10 years ago, and the weeds are very fresh. They come with great vitality, and they are there again. That is, of course, a mechanism, and that's why spiritual life sometimes is a constant struggle. It is true that there are levels of meditation which sometimes do destroy samskaras. For example, staying in states of samadhi for a long time slowly, slowly wears out the samskaras, and it's like somebody has put such a poison that even the roots of the weeds are slowly, slowly dying, and eventually they will present no danger. But the wind can bring new. You take a blood transfusion from somebody or you go in company with some other people who do those things and then like a transfusion. It's exactly like a gardener says, my field, I have used all the pesticides possible and now there is absolutely no weed here. It's clean. And then the birds are going to bring some seeds or the wind is going to bring some seeds and suddenly low your clean field is again producing weeds and therefore not to produce weeds you'd have to surround it that's why the fathers of the desert were staying in a room in a whitewashed room not seeing anybody not talking with anybody they have managed to bring their mind to nirvikalpa to blank state but as soon as they would get out of their room their mind would start accumulating weeds seeds for the new production of weeds and some of you would say, Swami, that doesn't sound as very practical. Like the spiritualist who does that is almost like an invalid, is almost like a person who has, to, who has no immune system, no antibodies, and any, as soon as you take contact with somebody, you are infected and you are about to die again. And that is true. Some spiritualists, all their lives, they had to guard themselves. Till the moment of their death, it was constant battle, with the temptations. Very few people realize this and they say, but isn't there a day when it, hap when it stops? With Nirvikalpa Samadhi practiced a lot, it can be possible to eradicate the mind, but even then, if you stop going in Samadhi, if you, you had Samadhi this spring from March till May, and you have gone really, really deep in samadhi over samadhi. Again, now your mind is like a clean slate. You have taken out from the subconscious mind, eradicated all the samskaras. And hey, now it's June, and you walk with some friends, and you talk with some people, and they telepathically start contaminating you again. You are like dressed in immaculate white, and everybody is wearing muddy clothes. It's impossible to walk together with people in muddy clothes without you getting some mud on your clothes. And that's why I have seen even very advanced spiritualists who after a while they would need from time to time to retire, to withdraw and to do some of their own things. I have seen mystics 
who would speak two hours with people, and then they will say, now I have to go in my place, because meanwhile, weeds have been growing on my field. Like, I haven't done prayer. I have been sitting here with you, and my mind, therefore, already contains the germs of new weeds. What I am saying here is, of course, a very non-tantric view. This is the Vedantic, typical view. This is the Buddhist, the classical Buddhist, not the Vajrayana Tantric, but the classical Buddhist, the Theravada and partly Mahayana view, in which the mind is considered as the enemy, and everything in the mind is a distraction, a desire. Theoretically, you can say that some of these desires can be allowed and cultivated, like there may be weeds, which actually are not quite weeds. Like, for example, for many gardeners, dandelion would be considered a weed. Because you didn't plant it, it just comes, and the fluffs from the dandelion fly all over the place, and then they pollute every field. That's why dandelion is widespread, because its seeds are propagating so easily with the wind. But dandelion can be used for salad then the lion can be used for some herbal treatments. And therefore, you can turn the poison into the nectar. You can say, no, 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 no. All, there are many weeds which are problems, but actually dandelion of all weeds, we can tolerate it a little bit because we can use some dandelion and we can use it in our nature's pharmacy. And thus, this would be more like the tantric attitude, like to say yes to some of the things because you know that you can use them in some way. For example, the desire for sex is a samskara. And according to Buddha, and according to the old Vedantic and Vedic teachings, it's going to cause you to reincarnate. It's one of the causes of reincarnation. As somebody said in an excellent joke, maybe May West or something, uh, they said that there are a hundred causes for reincarnation, out of which the first is sex and the other 99 don't matter. No? Like, sex is indeed one of the biggies, and many ascetics fought with it. And Tantra, especially the Tantra which involves a sexual part to it, says you don't need to kill this one, because you can sublime it, you can channel it, you can do Aikido with it. Instead of pushing it back, you can pull it and say, come on, let this weed grow and do something, because then I can take all the green stuff and use it as biomass. This weed can be exploited in some way. And thus, of course, this is a know-how. This involves a special know-how. So this, this uh, angle is looked in some, in the Vedantic spirituality, in the non-tantric spirituality, as an absolute thing, like desire is the weed of the mind. If you want to become like Buddha, if you want to become like Milarepa, if you want to become like, and take any other example, of enlightened being from the east or west, you have to stop any desire. If you die with one desire, either that desire, one weed, either that desire is falafel or sex, or whatever it is, you will come back. That desire, in the time when you stay in the astral body, will slowly, slowly grow up, grow up. You will have no ways of eradicating it.
because you are in the astral body and you cannot use your body and conscious mind as you do when you are alive in a physical body now. And this weed is going to grow and become tormenting. And after 300 years or after 5,000 years of staying in the astral world, it will gain a momentum which will be irresistible. Like your wish for that bloody falafel or for sex or for whatever it is, will become overwhelming and everything else is, has been kind of more or less eradicated. But this one out of negligence was still there, even in a seminal form. And then it becomes the cause of your next reincarnation. So these people who look upon it in a pure way, they simply say to be able to cut your links with samsara, to be able to cut your links with prakriti, you have to cut all the samskaras, you have to cut all the desires, and then your spirit will not be brought back by anything. But the tantric spirituality is not trying to cut the links with samsara or with the prakriti. The tantric spirituality says the prakriti is shakti. It's the mother of the universe. And why run of shakti? Where are you? If you run from shakti, you'll know only half of the truth, not the whole truth. And that's why the tantric spirituality says who gets liberated and from what. When this universe is Shiva and the spirit is Shiva, who gets liberated and from what. Even the idea of liberation in a monistic philosophy, it's a ridiculous idea because it would mean that half of the universe is unreal and out of God. And only half of the universe is divine and desirable and in God. And that's absurd. That's why the tantrics have outlined correctly that in samsara, you are also in God. So either in samsara or in nirvana, it makes no difference from a divine standpoint. And the divine condition is ultimately the same. And that's why the tantric tradition may advise in the beginning a purification of the samskaras. Like the first thing which you do clean your field of all the weeds, which means in you there can be violence, there can be the tendency to theft, there can be this, there can be that. First, clean them all, which is like, okay, so in the beginning you do what everybody else does. It's like you become very ascetic. But then you don't want to keep your field black, like with no vegetation on it. You want to allow some forms of vegetation to live. And the Vedantic person would say, that's dangerous. You allow anything to live, they will create some skaras, they will bring you back. And the Tantric say, we don't know about this. It's just fine any way it is. Samsara or Nirvana is just one and the same thing. Our problem is that wherever we are, we should be in full awareness. We should be in full awakening, not to be here or not to be there. That's not the issue. The issue is one's awareness. And therefore, the tantrics would say, you have cleaned the, the weeds, but now you want to put some dandelions, you want to put some marigold, you want to put some roses, you want to put some... This, because they look good. Somebody will say, these are still plants. They are going to sprout and grow, and they are going to do exactly what the weeds do. Metaphysically, they are just the same. But the tantrics would say, no. If you, if you took out the anger and violence, and you took out the theft, and you just leave there the love for God, the compassion, the goodness, the kindliness. There is nothing wrong with this. You can cultivate an excellent spiritual life 
allowing yourself to go into some emotions, into some thoughts and the others. That's why here we're talking about two very different spiritual universes and what Krishna says is perfectly ambivalent because Krishna usually does not give an interpretation. He describes the problem and he says as long as there are desires, one is going to be to have a problem because of them, but he does not give the solution. And of course, the most primitive and direct solution is uproot the bloody weeds. There are weeds and Krishna says the flame of desire is the constant enemy of the wise and Buddha says as long as you have desire, you'll reincarnate. So destroy desire, destroy desire, destroy desire, destroy desire by any... And somebody would say, okay, then the fanatics of this say you are not even allowed to desire God. But Ramakrishna and Rumi would be profoundly adverse to this statement. They will say, what do you mean? I'm not allowed to desire God. Desire God is all I'm doing every day. All day long, that's what I'm doing. So it means either that those methods are profoundly wrong or that there is another methodology. That is why, for example, in the Theravada style of Buddhism, when you go into a meditation retreat of the Theravada style of Buddhism, even devotion is considered to be a great obstacle. Compassion, devotion, like people say, I love Buddha or I love God or your meditation teacher will tell you to flush that down the toilet because that's just an emotionalism and it is related with some phantasmagoric thing in your mind and according to those people there is no God, there exists just a sort of a need inside you to love something which is perfect and infinite and that's ultimately a weed. That's ultimately a samskara. And therefore those people would say no, even bhakti. Bhakti, from the standpoint of such people, is a total nonsense. But for, from the standpoint of bhakti yogis, and especially in the tantric tradition, bhakti is not at all a nonsense and it becomes a liberating force. That's why always when you hear such sentences from Krishna, be aware of the fact that Krishna speaks with a forked tongue. He speaks in a double entendre. He leaves it open like, how do you solve this? You can solve it by this, but you can also solve it by that. The Vedantins have one way of solving the problem of human desires, and the Tantrics have another way of solving the problem of the human desires. And the Vedantic one is simple, straightforward, brutal, can't be more clear than that. You, you destroy 100% of your desires. No mercy. To the bottom. And that's it. And the tantric tradition says you can play with the fire and allow some of them, cultivate, select them, and use the ones which you have, and they can propel you again. And these two people, they cannot understand each other. And the truth is that here is a place where you cannot ride the two horses. If you are trying to systematically kill the slightest desire or samskara in your mind, then you cannot love Shiva, then you cannot love Kali, then you cannot try to cultivate compassion and others, because even those are samskaras and vrittis, movements of the mind, aspects of the mind. So, back again. Krishna says, wisdom is veiled. 
you remember the parable of the veil, that the smoke veils the fire. Wisdom is veiled by this insatiable flame of desire. Desire, I compared it to weeds. Krishna is much more plastic and he compares it with an insatiable flame. Like a flame, if you give it something to burn, it can burn forever. We can have a fire burning for 2,000 years non-stop if you just give it fuel. It's the same flame continuing non-stop for thousands of years. And that is why it's an insatiable flame because if you think that desire has an end, you are wrong. Desire has no end. And there are only two ways of dealing with it. Kill it 100% or learn a way to channel it into something spiritual. Otherwise, there is no way. So wisdom is veiled by this insatiable flame of desire, which is the constant enemy of the wise. Like you would say that the wise, the sages, the men and the women who practice the paths of wisdom, such as yoga, they have no enemy. They, they love everything. No, that's not true. Because spiritual practice is very often a dualistic thing, which goes from something undesirable to something which is your goal, your target, and which is desirable. And therefore, the stupidity which you had before is what is to be hated and despised. And the knowledge, the realization which you get is to be worshipped and venerated. And as such, spiritual evolution by itself involves a duality. I was stupid, I'm becoming wise. I was ignorant, I'm becoming knowledgeable. And that's why here Krishna can explain things only in a dualistic way because that's how the mind can relate to this subject. And that's why, yes, the wise, the sages, as long as they did not reach bhava samadhi, as long as they did not reach the full tantric spiritual realization, they have enemies. They are enemies in the spiritual practice. No, like Mahatma Gandhi would consider that violence is an enemy. He would fight against it, although, of course, with specific methods. As somebody said, you cannot fight with violence against violence. So he would not use that. He would use self-sacrifice and others. And that's why, again, the statement in 39 is, O Arjuna, Wisdom is enveloped by this constant enemy of the wise in the form of desire, which is an un unappeasable as fire. As long as fire can burn something, it will burn. Only when it has no more fuel, it stops. Therefore, meditate on the nature of desire because many people are trying to make a sort of a salad, a sort of a cocktail, and unfortunately it becomes a mess a mixed up thing because people if you ask yourself am I willing to go like a suicide to the complete extinction of my desires that's the price there has not been invented Tantra on this planet there has been only Vedantic spirituality has been revealed for the time being so there is no choice the only thing which I can do if I want to do spirituality and reach enlightenment is to mercilessly kill my own desires. Like when I die, my mind should be blank. The slate should be clean completely. I should be in a state of pristine purity of the mind. No desire should have subsisted. 
many people would run squealing. That's why not many people are used to do that spirituality, because that spirituality is somehow suicidal. It's like you have to be prepared to die, not only to die physically, because that's nothing, to die in your mind and in your soul, to kind of get down to zero. That's why the Buddhists and some Vedantic teachers call it shunya, shunyata, the void. You have like to go and throw yourself head forward into a black hole where you will be annihilated. Nothing will subsist from that. Therefore, very few people would do that. And that's why actually not so many people are ripe for the big league in spirituality. Because the big league supposes to say, if suddenly my tantric method doesn't work, or if the tantric method proves itself to be wrong, let's say, which is of course not true because it's been proven by the history, but if by absurdity I would presume that the tantric method is wrong, then the only alternative which is left to me is the ascetic path. Am I prepared to do even that, if that's what it takes? Is my love of God, is my love of nirvana, of spiritual realization, so big that I can cut off everything, like without any mercy, no hesitation? Not many people can do that. And this is one of the ways in which actually the tantric spirituality can be a trap. Because many people not having the guts to do that, they have the impression that in Tantra you are getting away cheaper. And at some level of the subconscious mind, the human mind is so twisted and we are all plagued by ego when we start the spiritual path, that everybody thinks that they found a way to cheat a little bit. You can keep still something for yourself. It's not that deprivation, it's not that radical peeling off which is required in the path, like Milarepa, go 40 years in a mountain until you turn into a walking skeleton and nothing is left out of you and your samskaras are burned down with sulfuric acid, you know, like nothing is left out of anything. And people think, oh, but in Tantra you can have a partner and you can enjoy this and that and you can feel emotions in your chakras. This is a trap. This is the tantric tradition not understood properly because the spirit and the aspiration has to be the same. As big as the aspiration of one who is ready to go head forward into a black hole. Only that the method is different and in Tantra we are very grateful that we are not given a thorny road but that we are given a road with rose petals on it and we are walking a beautiful, comfortable road. But this doesn't mean that our aspiration or our commitment should be less. We should always compare ourselves with the people who practice the other hand, the other side of the path, and see, they do this and this effort. What am I doing? Am I just cheating and enjoying the apparent benefits of the tantric path, thus never think that the other path does not have a utility, even if that utility is to challenge us 
and to serve as a comparison because there are people who may forget why they came into the spiritual path and then get lured into the sweetness of the tantric path and eventually they discover when they die that they didn't do much because they were not ready to push the envelope. In Tantra, you push the envelope somewhere else because you fight with different weapons. No? You have a partner and between, if it's sexual Tantra, and that, the relationship which you have with a partner is supposed to be a relationship of love. But that love has to be as detached as the void. Love is something which soothes you and burns you at the same time as Khalil Gibran says in his discourse on love. And that is why, uh, that is why Tantra contains, for example, rough approaches, shocking approaches. That's why the love of two tantric partners is not the same with the love of two bourgeois citizens who are just building up a family or a household. That would be just cheating and indulging in the sweetness of it. Ascetics have to live in a monastery and they will never have somebody who is a partner to them as a sexual partner or an opposite gender partner for your life. And the tantrics have it. But you have to pay a price for it. Remember that there is always, you have to pay a price. Everything which you do just moves the difficulty somewhere else. But the sum total of the difficulty is still the same. It's only that you don't have to do it by fasting and by staying locked in a whitewashed room for 12 years. You have to do it in other ways. But the aspiration still has to be there. That's why there is a misunderstanding. And I said many people create a mess out of it because they don't understand how to fight with the desires and they take the easy path out of it. There is much more, so much more which can be said here, but I will not stop because then this commentary will become endless. Nevertheless, remember always that what Krishna says goes to the right hand or to the left hand, depending on the methodology which is used. And here he continues. He speaks about the desire which is the enemy. And he says... The senses, I'm going to number 40, the senses, the mind, and the intellect are said to be its seat. The seat of what? The headquarters, the premises of the desire. Desire comes from the senses, the mind, and the intellect. Here we have a division, because in the Sanskrit yogic lore, the mind is divided in two forms of mind. A part of the mind is called manas, and that represents the lower sublevels of the Ajna chakra of the third eye, and it represents more like the conscious mind, the rational mind, the logical mind, the mind which is involved in scientific research and those. And then there is a part of mind which is more subtle, which is called buddhi, and buddhi, the more enlightened mind, that's where the name Buddha comes. Buddhi is a form of knowledge and Buddha is the illuminated one, the ones who knows. Buddhi 
is the enlightened mind like a mind which has a wider knowledge and it is the mind which you have in your dreams where for example you can get brilliant scientific or artistic ideas as inspiration in your dreams or in your meditation basically the buddhi is a mind which is an astral mind it is the mind at the level of the astral body it's a more subtle layer of the mind so when we say here when he says the mind and the intellect he means the lower part of the mind and the higher part of the mind the senses the mind and the intellect are said to be its seat he says where does desire come it comes from the senses it comes from the lower mind which is manomaya kosha the astral body it comes from the higher mind the intellect which is vijnana maya kosha the higher mind the intellectual mind overshadowing wisdom by means of these it deludes the dweller in the body the dweller in the body is the human being and in particular it could be a syntagm for the spirit the immortal spirit which dwells in the body during the lifetime and it says this the desire overshadowing wisdom by means of these by means of these what by means of the senses by means of the lower mind and by means of the higher mind which means the desires produce things in your senses they produce things in your logical mind they produce things in your expanded subtle mind such as for example initiatives if i have a desire you know all know how it goes you always find an excuse first of all your mind finds an excuse for eating something or not eating something for doing something for not doing something for smoking or for not smoking your mind finds an excuse and then so the the desire colors your senses such as suddenly that type of food becomes so alluring and somebody says come on is disgusting yesterday i ate too many falafels and i started throwing up they are actually greasy and disgusting when you eat especially a bit too much of them but for the one who is prey to the desire they are like paradise they are like the most desirable thing in the world the very feeling that you might be testing tasting a piece of falafel soon is making you dribble with saliva and you will not be seeing the fact that for some other people they can feel despicable or rejectable and that's why overshadowing wisdom there is a wisdom and my wisdom could tell me no no that's not really healthy or good but the wisdom is overshadowed is like completely blinded or overwhelmed and it is overshadowed by the senses by the lower part of the mind and by the higher part of the mind even intellectually i can give myself an excuse for doing this or for not doing that thus sometimes people's excuses either that those excuses come from their senses or lower mind or higher mind are just that they are just excuses which are produced by the desires the desires are more subtle and they manipulate people's senses lower mind and higher mind to produce the momentum to produce the impulse to go there 
and thus overshadowing wisdom by means of these three, it deludes the dweller in the body. So, once more to conclude, this desire, the senses, the mind and the intellect are said to be its seat. Through these, through those three, it deludes the embodied soul by veiling his wisdom. Suddenly, all my wisdom is worth nothing because I had a desire to smoke a cigarette or to do this or to do that. And suddenly, all my wisdom has done gone down the drain, has gone down the drain because it is overshadowed by desire. And he continues, therefore, first, having first organized the senses, O best of Bharatas, shake off this evil, the destroyer of knowledge and realization. So basically, Krishna simply says, first having organized the senses, controlling the senses, which is the first method to control the senses. It's called Pratyahara. When you do Pratyahara, the fifth level of yoga, that's when you control the senses because the Pratyahara is your own demonstration to yourself that you can withdraw your senses. Like during Pratyahara, if you do an excellent yoga practice, meditation or whatever it is, you don't see, you don't hear, you don't feel hunger, you don't feel sensations, you don't get addicted to taste, to smell, to anything. You are just doing your spiritual practice. And thus, the control of the senses already comes at the level of Pratyahara. It's imperiously necessary to have reached at least to this level to, to understand the statement of Krishna. And Krishna says, therefore, having first controlled the senses, O best of Bhartas, that's the name of Arjuna, so O Arjuna, shake off this evil, he calls it an evil. The fact that the desires manipulate and motivate and charge up the senses, the lower mind and the higher mind, and thus they take you like a wild wind, like a storm, they take you wherever they want to take you. And this is nothing else but the force of karma. Karma produces, is the corollary of this, and it is the karma, because you can say, where are the desires going to take you? Who decides? Is it just random? Like apparently weeds are growing randomly in somebody's garden. Actually, there is a factor which makes that these weeds grow in a certain way. And that factor, which is even deeper, is the karma itself. So the karma will make that the desire, some desires will still subside and those desires will be neglected and then they will grow in a very perfidious way and then they will veil the wisdom, they will motivate the senses, the lower mind and the higher mind and then the human being will be swept in that direction. So, she says, shake off this evil which is the destroyer of knowledge and realization. There is no knowledge and realization as long as the desire has not been brought under control. Again and again, you can say, but Swami, in Tantra, we all, anybody who does sexual Tantra must have some sort of desire because, for example, the sexual desire so that you can perform the sexual activity at all. Yes, but that desire is allowed like a controlled gardener allows some weeds 
because they may prove themselves useful in a situation. So it's a sort of controlled playing with the fire, allowing that some of the desires can be there because you know what to do next. When this desire moves my senses, moves my mind, and thus I feel myself driven in a certain direction, then I do the Yoni Mudra, or I do this, or I do that, and then I can turn the tables on it, and I can transform the poison into nectar. I can transform this potential into divine consciousness. The sex, for example, desire, can become superconsciousness by the very definition from sex to superconsciousness. And thus, even in Tantra, the fact that you should pay attention does not disappear. You pay as much attention as somebody who wants to exterminate them, only that you have a different set of rules, which are a very smart set of rules. Therefore, he says, O Arjuna, controlling the senses first, kill this sinful thing, the desire, the destroyer of knowledge and realization. Remember, Krishna is adamant. Either there is knowledge and realization, or there is desire. The desire which exists in the environment of Tantra is a desire which is controlled. It is used exactly as in some vaccinations or something. You allow some viruses or bacteria which are half asleep, half inactivated, to come and produce a challenging, stimulating effect, and then you use them. You use, or the venom of a bee can be used to heal some rheumatism or arthritis, or you can use a poison as the antidote to that very poison. Or you can use a needle or a thorn to pull out a thorn from your own flesh. You need a thorn to pull out another thorn. A thorn pulls out another thorn. That's the tantric principle that you can use some of the manifestation aspects. And he continues with this theory. Again, this was more the jnana yoga because here he speaks again about the distinction between senses, mind, spirit, and he ends gloriously in the last two shlokas, in the last two strophes, by describing that once more, the senses, they say, are subtle. More subtle than the senses is mind. Yet finer than mind is intellect. That which is beyond even the intellect is he, the self. Here, in, in Agama Yoga, this can very easily, in Tantric Yoga, this can very easily be interpreted on the bodies. For example, the nature of the energy in the etheric body is called the Tanmatras, the subtle essences which are called smell, taste, sight, touch, hearing, which are nothing else but the five senses. The five Tanmatras, which are the etheric, the etheric body, the Pranamaya Kosha, the second body, aspects of the various energies, they are the tanmatras, they are called tanmatras or senses. So the senses are subtle because they are not physical, they are already something subtle. The etheric body is already more subtle than the physical flesh, so the desires are not of the flesh. They are something in the chi, they are something in the prana, 
they are something in our energy. But then he says, more subtle than the senses is the lower mind. The lower mind, which is called manas. Manomaya kosha, the body made of manas, which is nothing else but the astral body. More subtle than the senses, which are the second body, the etheric body, is the lower mind, which is the astral body. And yet finer than mind is intellect. Intellect is the higher mind, the Vijnanamaya Kosha, the fourth body. So the second body is subtle, but the mind is more subtle than it. And yet more subtle is the mind, the Vijnanamaya Kosha, the fourth body of the human being. That which is beyond even the intellect is he, the self. So what's beyond the fourth body? The fifth body. And you all know from the first week of yoga that you have done in Agama that the fifth body is the body of enlightenment already. It is the body from where one does not relapse anymore. It is called Ananda Mayakosha. And Ananda means bliss, enlightenment, beatitude, ecstasy. And therefore, when you reach beyond the mind, that means you reach to the fifth body. And reaching to the fifth body, you have surpassed the desires, you have surpassed the limits, and you have reached, therefore, enlightenment. So this is translated perfectly in the language of yoga. They say that the senses are superior to the body, superior to the senses is the lower mind, superior to the mind is the higher mind, the intellect, and one who is superior even to the intellect is he, the self. Technically saying, we would say Swami. But the self, Atman, is not the causal body. The causal body is still one of the five koshas. It's a body. It's something made of energy. And what we call Atma or Atman is beyond that. It's something which is transcendent. It's a spiritual nature. Yes. But if you remember from the theory of day four of yoga, that was exactly this Thursday, tonight, in the other yoga hall for the beginners, in the day four, the theory of the five bodies, from the fifth body and up, the bodies number five, six, and seven cannot be separated. They have to be taken as a whole, and they represent the divine triad of Sat, Chit, and Ananda. Or otherwise said, number five is Ananda, number six is Chit, and number seven is Sat, also called Atma or Atman or Spirit. And that's why if I speak about the body number five, I speak about the body number seven as well. They cannot be separated. This is the causal kernel. It's the causal nucleus of the human being. And that's why for the yogis, it's enough to get to the body number five. If you have surpassed the mind and you have gone to Ananda Mayakosha, then you are in the sphere of the divine. And then you don't need to be plagued by the worries or the problems which you have down here. And that's why it's enough, he says, if you go, that which is beyond the intellect is the self. Technically, it's not completely accurate. Beyond the self is the Ananda Mayakosha, and beyond the Ananda Mayakosha is the sixth body. And beyond the sixth body only, there is the Supreme Self, actually speaking, properly speaking. But five, six, and seven cannot be split. And because of this, it's a package deal. When you got one, you got all of them in the process. And that is why, for practical purposes, actually Krishna is right practically. He is not 
perfectly right theoretically in the meaning that it can be explicitated more. So he made it very clear. You are looking for something which is beyond your senses. Like if you want to feel God, you will be disappointed because God cannot be felt. If you want to think God, you will be disappointed because God cannot even be thought neither in a more concrete way nor in a more abstract way, neither by the Manomaya Kosha nor by the Vijnana Maya Kosha. The only experience which one has of God is that of Ananda, of beatitude, of bliss, which is beyond the mind, beyond the emotions, beyond the sensations. It's not about those. That's why people who still have a sensory experience or an emotional experience or even a mental intellectual experience of God or of the Buddha nature, they don't actually have it yet. It's still a mixed up experience. It's still an inferior experience. It may be a spiritual experience, but it's not yet the real thing. It has to go beyond that. And he concludes with the last of the shlokas here, saying thus, having known him who is beyond the intellect. That's the spirit. That's the Atman. So thus, having known your real self, thus, having known him who is beyond the intellect, having stilled the self by the self, O mighty armed, O Arjuna, again, poetic speaking, slay the enemy in the form of desire, difficult to subdue. So he says, thus, having got a glimpse of the bliss of the spirit, because if you don't have a glimpse of it, then maybe you don't have the motivation. It's like it's not worth it. That's why a great, great dictum of spirituality, very difficult to understand by the beginners, says, I wouldn't, speaking about God, speaking to God, says, I wouldn't have sought for you if I wouldn't have found you already. That means the person that is a spiritual seeker is a person who already has had a taste of the goods by grace. So if you didn't have a taste of it, why would you seek for it? Why would you be so crazy for it? Because we say aspiration. It's like an intuition. Yes, but even the intuition intuits something. It infers something. And therefore it means that even, even at a non-verbal level, even at a deep subconscious level, we actually have experienced something. The bell has been rung. Somebody pinched the strings of our lute inside the heart. And that's why it sings. And then we seek. But we seek because the quest has been started from within and from above. It is the divine consciousness which came to us and said, time to wake up. Ping! Ringing the string of the heart. And then suddenly I don't know why I become a seeker. I have a nostalgia. I have a aspiration. Lots of aspiration. How can I look for something which I don't know? People say, I have the intuition of it. Yes, but the intuition means that I have grasped it somewhere, somehow. 
Because intuition means we, I know in a different way. I don't know in a scholarly way. I don't know in a logical way. I don't know in a scientific and rational way. But still the intuition. So if any one of you has the intuition of a great happiness called nirvana, if any one of you has the intuition of a divine universal consciousness called God or Shiva in which there exists eternity and bliss, you already found it. And of course you already found it because it's there already. You are it. You wouldn't be even able to exist without it. Your own Atman, your own Buddha nature is made out of it. So actually the seed of the quest exists in us from the very beginning. There is nobody who is totally a non-spiritual being because everybody has the seed in themselves. But for most people it is not a declared thing. It is not a manifest thing. And that is why he says, having known him who is beyond the intellect, it sounds like a paradox. It's a catch-22. No, If you know him who is beyond the intellect, then why do you need to do any yoga anymore? Because you have reached, you, you are knowing the spirit. But there is a feeble knowing, an intuitive, vague knowing, which just tickles us in the heart and says, I don't know why, but I am infatuated with this. I am completely ecstatic about this my aspiration torments me every day it's like I want to get there and then it's I feel it already I remember this and meditate often on it in your own case in your own life I would not have sought for you if I would have not found you if I didn't find you already every spiritual seeker has found God already because otherwise, what are you seeking for? You can't seek something which is tasteless and beyond the beyond and presents no attraction. Then how come it presents attraction? It presents attraction because you tasted it. You got an appetizer of it. You got a pre-taste of it. And thus, here it's very beautiful. This is subtle spiritual psychology. He says, thus... Having known him who is beyond the intellect, which is not enough, it's just the first step, it's just the first awakening. We call it sometimes the awakening of the soul, and this is something which I describe in the lecture on yoga asana, on shashankasana, yoga asana, the mystery of jivatman, that in your heart you have a taste and you discover something of immortality, which is perhaps not the complete aspect of immortality, but still something. And thus having known him who is beyond the intellect, having stilled the self by the self, there is one more condition. Not only having aspiration, not only having been tickled in your heart by the infinite, but also having stilled the self by the self. In, in Sanskrit, there are no capital letters and small letters. All the letters have one, and even when you write Shiva or something, the Sh, the first letter, is not capital. The proper names, they don't have this concept of capital and non-capital letters. And the, but the translators in English of this verse and others like them, they always use for the first self a small letter and for the second self a capital. Because here... This is a typical game with words. 
having still or restraining, if you want, the self by the self. It doesn't mean the same. The first self is the ego, the lower self, the superficial self of the human being with the desires, with the pranic body, the, with the manomaya kosha, with the vijnana maya kosha, and the self with a capital S is that dude or that thing which is beyond the intellect, which is beyond the vijnana maya kosha. So he says, restraining the self by the self, stilling, having stilled the self by the self, which means the lower self, our physical body, but more than that, the etheric body, the astral body, the mental body, they are full of desires. They are not still. That's why everybody looks for peace. Om, Shanti, Shanti, Shantihi, peace is the ideal because there is no peace. The etheric body, the astral body, the, the mental body, they are prey to the dialectics of yin and yang, of rajas, tamas and sattva, whatever, and they just go on. They are in, in a boiling. They are like completely in a process. They flow all the time. There is no peace. The peace exists only higher. For example, when you reach the bliss of Ananda, of Ananda Mayakosha. And that's why Krishna says it exactly like in the yoga text, having stilled the self, the lower self by the higher self. That means your lower self wants to be agitated and your higher self says, wait a second, what am I doing here? Why do I live this life? Soon I'm going to be dead. I did not solve the big issue of life. Therefore, I have a conscience and a consciousness. And my consciousness, which is my spirit, my Buddha nature, says, sit down and do some meditation. Solve the problems of life. Solve the essential riddle of life. And therefore, I can still my lower self, my mind, my astral body, my etheric body, and even the physical body, when you put it in an asana, or when you sit in the lotus pose, you just still it. I can still them by what? By consciousness, by awareness, by conscience. Like, hey, the clock is ticking. My life is passing. Soon I'm going to be empty and weak. And I'm just going to look around asking myself, what the heck have I done in this life? What am I leaving behind me? Here is another perfectly good life wasted where I just converted oxygen into carbon dioxide. What, did, what am I doing? This is my consciousness. This is the voice of God because this is the voice of reality. It's like, wake up. Who am I? What's all this? Why am I here? And thus, you can still the lower self by the higher self. Like whenever you feel that you are going too much agitated, you can ask yourself the questions. One of the questions which comes related with this is always thinking about death. As you know, if you think about death, then you immediately will get afraid because you'll think, what the heck am I doing? I could be dead tomorrow. This could be the last day of my life. What am I doing? You know, and then the idea of death is just meant to bring awareness because it stops you in your track and it like rings a very powerful alarm signal. And that is why you can subdue the lower self by the higher self. That's exactly the struggle. The lower self contains even the mind. 
And when you do Shambhavi Mudra, you are fighting against your own mind. The mental monkey says, don't do Shambhavi Mudra. Then what is the only thing which can put the mind to work and say, shut up, do the Shambhavi Mudra? It's the higher self. Only the consciousness can tame the mind. The mind will always say no. But the consciousness says, you must. You must. You have to. Because the clock is ticking. Death is coming. Why are you born in this world? Did you fulfill the goal of life? Did you reach bliss and knowledge and realization? No, you didn't. Then get to work. Do the Shambhavi Mudra. Or whatever it is. Shambhavi Mudra was just an example of the place where the mind really fights back, where the mind opposes. So it's a very beautiful, very yogic teaching here. Thus, having known him who is beyond the intellect, the self, having stilled the lower self by the higher self, O mighty armed, O Arjuna, slay the enemy in the form of desire, difficult to subdue. Even Krishna admits to slay the desire is the last thing. For most people, even in this room, seek your hearts and you will see there is something deep, deep enough you inside you which does not want to give up desire. People who have desire are alive. A writer like Jack London even wrote a novel which is called Thirst of Life. It's about a man who is lost in Alaska, attacked by wolves, and he crawls like an animal, and he is defending himself, and he makes superhuman efforts, and the whole thing is he doesn't want to freeze, he doesn't want to die, he just wants to live. And of course, it expresses this incredible power of life, that life always triumphs, that Shakti is invincible, that the life of the mother of the universe you can see plants sprouting and cracking cement and concrete and so on. The life is so strong, it breaks down the pyramids. It breaks down everything, so it cannot be capped by anything. So powerful life is. Even if we go into a total nuclear war and nuke this planet through and through with all the nuclear weapons which exist today, even if this earth gets hit by a huge comet, still the life will not disappear on earth the amoebas and some other primitive forms of life will still survive. Life is invincible because it's Shakti, it's the life of God, it's the breath of God, it's the Holy Spirit of God and it always wins. And this life contains with it the opposite of Purusha, it's Prakriti, it contains with it the thirst of life which is very specific to the astrological sign of the Arius which is the baby of the zodiac and wants just to live. It's just born in the manifestation and wants to grab everything. And the opposite of it is in the astrological sign of the Pisces, which is the ancient, the elder of the zodiac, and which is the one who is fed up with everything and wants to go out of it. That is why this kind of terminal aspiration, like I'm going to die doing yoga, is found very often in Pisces. Look at your friends in the school who are born in Pisces and who do yoga and you are going to see that there is some of this suicidal extreme thing like I'm ready to let go, I'm ready to give up. 
Of course, if that Pisces is not a very evolved spirit, then he still clings to life. And therefore, if I simplify, because the metaphor of Jack London is slightly different, but if I want to twist it a little bit in favor of my commentary tonight, I would say that a person who is thirsty for life is not thirsty for nirvana. Nirvana in Pali means extinction, like you blow off a candle. That's what Buddha says. You have to blow your own desires, life, off. It is perfectly equivalent with a complete suicide, not just a physical one, a complete one. Like throw yourself into a black hole and stop everything. Who has such a radical renunciation? That's why spirituality is not easy. Because everybody wants to keep a little bit of something and to cheat, to hide a couple of biscuits under the pillow or under the mattress. You know, so you have something. You have to keep something. But no, you have to give everything to God unconditionally. That's why one of the utmost mystical tests is that you are pushed into the dark night of the soul and you are pushed into a place where you feel and it looks like you've lost everything. Like the famous Job from the Bible. Lost his position, lost his wealth, lost his family, lost his health, lost everything. And when he lost everything, he was as good as dead. And he still had the power to love God. And then that was his ultimate test. Christian mystics have called this, St. John of the Cross in the 10th or 11th century, I forgot, has called this, and it's it, it, from since that time it stays, he has called it the dark night of the soul. Do not be alarmed. The dark night of the soul comes to people who are 99% enlightened. It's one of the last, if not the very last spiritual test that you will encounter. The dark night of the soul is simply testing you if you indeed are ready to just let go of everything and not preserve anything for yourself. Of course, the divine consciousness does not need to actually deprive people physically of everything or like it happened with Job. That's an archetypal, that's an almost mythological or archetypal example. For most mystics, this is an internal experience. But for example, Saint Therese of Lisieux, the French Christian saint, she also lost everything. She had tuberculosis. She died of tuberculosis at the age of 29 or something. Very young, young woman, died of tuberculosis. And six months before dying of tuberculosis, until the day when she died, she could not feel Jesus anymore. She could not. Simply God took from her the pleasure of feeling anything about God. And she was suddenly sitting there like nothing. She couldn't even say that there existed a God. She loved Jesus. She gave herself to Jesus. She wrote in her personal diary that Jesus felt like a lover to her. That he was comforting her and all the rest. And six months before her death, she went blank. Exactly like Jesus on the cross. When he cried, 
Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you left me? Can you imagine what a torment that is if a spirit like Jesus, who is labeled as an avatar, screamed in agony, like the pain which he was feeling there was incomparably bigger than the pain of crucifixion. The pain of crucifixion, although odious, it was peanuts compared to the fact that he was there crucified and suddenly the whole thing seemed to be for nothing. It's like there is nobody, you don't feel anything, you can't feel God anymore, and suddenly it's like, why the heck are you sitting on a cross like an idiot? There is no God. You've just lost everything. You are an imbecile. You are a schizophrenic. You've just lost everything. You just... Everybody has to go through this test. And it's absolutely radical and formidable. It's the most scary thing which can be imagined because either you are ready to give everything unconditionally, even when you don't feel. It's not about what you feel. It's not about... There is no satisfaction. Nothing. There is no response of any kind. You are like going in the dark. Suddenly, everything was taken from you. If in that condition you can still continue, then indeed your spiritual intuition is there. Because that intuition which you cannot explain in any way, still it is there and you are following it. That's why it is exactly as the Dalai Lama says, never give up. You can never give up. You should never give up. Because everything is just a test meant to take some things away from you to see if you still go. People say, I feel God every time when I meditate with God. I feel something magnificent in my heart and I feel love. And it's, it shall be taken from you one day. Not forever, but for a while and for a while which is long enough to become desperate. Like you will not see the light at the end of the tunnel and it would seem like it has been taken forever. You will not be able to cheat. And you will have to go to the point where saying, even if I don't feel anything and there doesn't seem to be anything, my initial intuition with which I started, that thing which made me move in the direction of the cosmic consciousness, that thing is right and shall always be right. So even when everything seems to be lost, I still do it for free. There is no reward. There is no feedback. I may be a mental patient who simply misunderstood the whole thing, and I just lived in a total illusion. And yet, I go forward. That's what it takes. It takes an absolute commitment which cannot be shaken. It's like God is playing hide-and-seek with you. And at some point, God hides, just to see if you still seek for him, even when there is absolutely no feedback. This is what is involved here uh, in this. That's why it is difficult to subdue, because everybody secretly keeps some desires, even if that desire is the desire to create universes, even if that desire is to spread compassion to all the sentient beings, even if the, whatever desire it is, has to be wiped out first. And then you are like a gardener who after took out everything, then he plants the seeds which he wants to have in the garden. Love, 
compassion, but he allows those to be because he planted them himself and they are serving a purpose. They are not chaotic weeds as before. So everybody has to go through a stage. You often hear me speaking about the tantric vision that you don't need to practice the ultra-asceticism, but it's not entirely true because the first part is to go to the top of the mountain, to the nirvikalpa samadhi, to the void, to this spiritual death, and afterwards, when you gained that, to take over the universe. And that is why you cannot cheat the people who have gone directly to Bhava Samadhi, like Ramakrishna and others. They already had made this renunciation in their minds. They were prepared to do that. And because it was known about them that they were prepared to take that, it was not necessary to test them anymore. The test was passed automatically in a second. The dark night of the soul was not necessary for it. But everybody else who goes into spiritual evolution, and fortunately, it probably won't happen during your first year of yoga, or for the case, during the first 10 years of your yoga practice. But if you are decided to go to the top of the mountain, just before you reach the top of the mountain, there is a desert zone. And that no man's land, which is like a stony desert, is called the dark night of the soul, in which everything is taken away from you, as the last test. And believe me, although I'm telling it to you now, and although you might be able to identify and to say, gosh, I am in the dark night of the soul now, it won't make it easier. You won't be able to pamper yourself to soothsay yourself, oh, but Swami said, and St. John of the Cross said, that it's the night of the soul and it's just a test and God is hiding right behind it. And That's theory. In practice, it will feel like nothing is left, like you have lost your life foolishly and you have created the biggest flop ever. That's the deal, and that's why... He says, slay the enemy in the form of desire, difficult to subdue. That's why it's difficult, because you cannot go with half measures here. There is no room for histrionics, theatrical things, lip service, superficial things. It is in the spirit of the Bulgarian proverb from your first month papers, which says, if you want to drown, don't torture yourself with shallow water. Like some people say, I want to drown, like I want to die spiritually. And then they flick-flock in water which is 10 centimeters deep. You'll never drown yourself in 10 centimeter deep water. You are torturing yourself and you are just, it's a game, it's a pretense. Go into deep water and really do it. Don't hold back. There is something frightening in this. And this part is the one which requires a strong purusha, this is what requires a strong spiritual presence because that immaterial thing which is the spirit, that's the only thing which sustains you and guides you like a guiding light in the night of the soul. And that is by excellence the Shiva aspect and the masculine aspect. That is why as a general truth which may be politically incorrect in the history of spirituality it is more men than women, although women did it, but more seldom, who have had the guts 
to go at this level. Like, I have screwed up totally. I am a total loser and I wasted my life and the result of it is zero. If you can say and feel that and still love God, then you are saved. Then you have indeed demonstrated that your intuition crosses through the veils of manifestation and you can still be guided. So, thus, knowing him who is superior to the intellect, the spirit, and restraining the lower self by the higher self, slay thou, O mighty-armed Arjuna, the enemy in the form of desire, hard to conquer. Remember that Krishna does not say in which way to slay it. And still, therefore, we have a dry path, the Vedantic non-tantric path, and there is a tantric path. The tantric path also slays the desire. In the moment when you finish the accounts, you are like a gardener who has cleansed all the weeds and then planted tulips. And you are having a field of tulips. You can get to that in two ways. First, by exterminating everything and then planting tulips from scratch. Or weeding the field, planting the tulips and meanwhile weeding the fields. Which sounds so much more uh, slippery, but then you don't need to go to that scratch level. The final result is this gardener and this gardener, both of them, they got a field full of tulips. Clean, beautiful, harmonious, but one of them got to it first by killing everything and then bringing the tulips, and the other one got from it from wherever it was. That's the tantric method, which means you take the weeds one by one and you address the ones which are useless, and you allow only the tulips to be there, which are the compassion, the friendliness, the positive aspects, the virtues of the Holy Spirit, as Paul calls them, and the, uh, you don't need to go through this radical phase. That's why if you think about the final goal, the final goal is not to have a barren field where every form of green has been destroyed. The purpose of any gardener is to get a field full of tulips or roses or whatever. I hope you understood. The tulips are just an example. And thus, if you look at the final goal, you can find two different ways to get to a field full of tulips. One of them which is radical and one of them which is more minute. Like, for example, I think and I can find a selective DNA, nanotechnology, virus, biohazard weapon which attacks not the tulips but only the weeds. And then I don't need to scratch everything or first to destroy everything because I use a know-how. The tantric technology and the tantric spirituality is always more based on a smart know-how, while the other one is based more on force. It's based more on a sort of a radical force. First, you wipe out everything, and then you plant tulip bulbs. And in this way, you got it from scratch and this and that. But somebody would say the person who did the wiping out, and then they planted tulips, 
What will happen two months later when the birds and the wind will keep... How can you isolate the garden completely? And the truth is you can't really isolate the garden that completely. So that's why this method, which is a perfectionistic square method, first you scrap everything and then you put... It's a bit ridiculous because it is meant to lose in some way because there will always be new weeds. As long as you subsist in this universe, there will still be some interaction. That's why, in our opinion, the tantric method is the more intelligent one because it's a method which includes life itself. You do it while you live. You do it... So if you know how to deal selectively and leave the tulips alone and they'll deal with the weeds, and even if they come two months later, you weed them out as you did before. It's a constant effort. That's why perhaps the tantric method, which makes the human being not run away from the world, but be able to confront the world. Like, don't run away from sex. Learn how to deal with sex. Then you are like vaccined. You are immune. You know how to deal with these things. And even two months later, when new weeds will come in, there will be nothing frightening in it because you have dealt with weeds to start with and you did not need to use a radical method. Total, let's first destroy everything and start from scratch. Thus, the tantric method which Krishna often preaches but sometimes he quotes it in the radical original way, so you never know what he really preaches. If he preaches a total renunciation, or if he preaches a, a more sophisticated way of dealing with things, Krishna, often he himself, is more on the tantric side, because he wants a spirituality which is included in life, which can resist the weeds. You are going to get out of your whitewashed cell, and new samskaras will come to your mind then what to do? Run back in your cell and spend another three months to eradicate the weeds from your mind, the newly planted seeds, because Prakriti, Mother Nature, is relentless. She is infinite and she continues forever. And that's why you have to find a solution which is not a one-timer. You have to find a solution which is permanent. And in this analogy, you can understand why Krishna says, Action is superior to inaction. It is much better to get yourself involved in doing things rather than applying the radical thing. But remember that the radical method is teaching us something very beautiful and it is teaching us that somewhere, at some level of our beings, our aspiration has to be ready even for something radical. If that's the only way you can see or do, then it's better to be radical. A man like Jesus sounds fanatic when he says, if your right hand prevents you from going to the kingdom of heaven, cut off your right hand, because it is better to reach to the kingdom of heaven without one hand than not to reach at all. Out of attachment, some people are not prepared to cut off their right hand. But in spirituality especially in the high stages, you have to be ready to cut off your right hand if need be. You have to be ready to go the full Monty. That's why not everybody makes it to the level of Milarepa, because not everybody is ready to cut off their right arm. 
remember that this is something in spirituality and you cannot cheat it even when you do it in a tantric way still the flavor of it it is there and the dark night of the soul is part of the process at one point or another these are very beautiful teachings and with this we have concluded actually the third chapter and tonight I shall say no more I shall continue no more in our next satsang which will be next week as far as I remember I haven't consulted the program but the next satsang whenever it's on the calendar of the school we are going to start with the yoga of wisdom the chapter number four where Krishna takes a slightly different angle of attack to the ignorance of Arjuna and he explains to him in a slightly different way and your understanding will again grow with this as we do usually when we finish with when such radical and spectacular teachings of those given by Krishna let us now remain in silence for a couple of minutes like in a small meditation allowing our subconscious mind to calm down and absorb the wonderful teachings the radical teachings of Krishna after which we will part will stop this lecture and part so a couple of minutes of silent meditation allowing all this which has been said tonight to sink in And that will do for now. Namaste to all of you. With this, we have concluded for tonight.